Okay, Booker Tov. Um, all right, today's daf is daf uh, tet nine, and we start at the top on the Mishnah. Now, it actually very nicely is a continuation of what we did yesterday, because yesterday we ended with a famous discussion of Sukkot Ganbach. That's a hard sort of phrase to forget, um, and it comes up in Halacha, and that is, um, go, you know, Goyim Nashim uh, Behema, that basically made for sukkahs that are made not for the purpose of sukkahs, made even for animal shelter, made by non-Jews. All of that is kasher. You do not need the sukkah, the object of the mitzvah, if you would, to be made with any particular intent, just that it has to be made for the sake of shade, for the schach to be considered shade, for the schach to be considered kasher schach, to be considered schach, one might say, it has to be something that was put up there for the purpose of shade. Our mission continues that um, in a debate of Beit Hillel Beit Shammai. So let's take a look. Top of Um Sukkah Yishana, if it's an old sukkah, meaning, you know, it's from months ago. Some people don't take down their sukkahs till Pesach time, but okay, but this is not even if it was made for sukkahs and so It was just, you know, a hut that you made months ago for some totally other purpose. Beit Shammai posts, and Beit Shammai say it's invalid. Beit Hillel Mashiach and Beit Shell says it is valid because, as we learned yesterday, a sukkah does not have to be made for the sake of sukkahs. The Ezuhi Sukkah Yishana, what's an old sukkah? More than 30 days before sukkah. Okay, that, but, but, let, let, so there are two alternatives that we made it. Or, you know, that's invalid according to Beit Shammai, more than 30 days before sukkah. But, made within 30 days, so Rashi says any period within 30 days of a Chag, you normally start learning about the halachas of the Chag, and therefore we can assume that your intent, even if you weren't really thinking about it, was implicitly for the sake of Sukkot. So the basic point here is that Beit Shammai demands that it actually be made for the purpose of Sukkot, and Beit Hillel does not. So since Beit Shammai demands that it be made for the purpose of Sukkot, if it's old and was done for some other purpose, you know, whatever, just some stam, no good. But within 30 days, we can assume either implicitly your intent was to do it for the purpose of Sukkot, or, that's the way Rashi says, or what I would argue is even whatever, you're, even if you didn't have any intent, anything, any Sukkot being built, let's say by a Jew, within 30 days of Sukkot, by definition is a Sukkot for Sukkot. Meaning even if you had no intent, just the timing of it, you know, a Jew building a hut within 30 days sort of objectively gets seen as a, you know, a sukkah for Sukkot. So that's enough for Beit Shabbat. But more than 30 days before is no good. What if you have specific intent? That's the end of the Mishnah. If you made it for the sake of Sukkot, even from the beginning of the year. Now, the beginning of the year is only 15 days ago. But it doesn't mean that beginning of the year. It means like, even who knows? Like, even a year ago, it's okay. As long as it's made for the sake of Sukkot. So for Beit Shammai, I don't know if he would exactly articulate it as it has to be made with the intent, but it certainly has to be defined as a as a as, as a sukkah hachad, a sukkah you know a yanta sukkah, a sukkah for the chag. How is that defined? One way is that's what you have in mind when you make it, and then you could make it a year ago. Another way is you had nothing in mind, but it was made within a month before. So objectively, it's a sukkah a sukkah for the chag. But made more than a month before with nothing in mind, it's a totally neutral sukkah and it cannot be used for the mitzvah. That's Beit Shammai. Beit Hillel is what we saw yesterday. It doesn't have to be made with any thought of the Chag. It could be made by non-Jews. It could be made for animals to live in it. It doesn't matter. As long as it's made for shade, that's satisfied. Okay, that's the Beit Hillel position. Now, Tosvos, by the way quote a Yerushami which is brought down the Halacha if you just look at the first few words of the Tosvos Sukkah Yeshana Tosvos says Yerushami Tani in the Yerushami it's taught Tzarech Lechadesh Badavar that you have to even according to Beit Hillel if it's an old Sukkah not made for the purpose of the Chag you need to do something new you need to make a little bit of a add a little Schach specifically for the sake of Sukkah Chaveria Amrin, in like the, the Chevra say, the, you know, the colleagues say, whatever, Tefach. So there's like a, a general approach that says you have to add an extra Tefach of Schach, put in a new Tefach, you know, a hand breath, maybe by a hand breath, that is new Schach, for the sake of Sukkot. Reveals Yomer Kol Even a little bit of new Schach. But then Yishaman goes on to say that if it's a little bit, Kula. Yeah, it could be a little thin strip, but it has to go the entire length, or at least the entire width of the sukkah. 
So basically, there's a pullback from the positions that, 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 that from what the Gemara is saying. The Gemara is really saying that you can have a sukkah that completely is not made, completely has no identity as a yantav sukkah, as a chag sukkah, according to Beit Hillel. All it has to be done is made for shade, not even for human shade. That's only Beit Shammai that needs it to be done either with the intention of the yantav, of the chag, or with framed as, for the, as a sukkah for chag. But the Yushalmi pulls back on Beit Hillel. It says even for Beit Hillel, you need something to label it you know, a sukkah sachad. Maybe not the whole thing, but a little bit to indicate, you know, to give it that identity. Um, you know, there's a question whether the Yushalmi is saying, according to Beit Hillel, that's just like a nice thing to do. It's more appropriate that you do something to designate it, or whether it's saying that according to Beit Hillel is actually strictly required. You know, and this is a practical halacha. There's an, you know, somebody, somebody's in a sukkah and it wasn't, like, I don't know, let's say you're, you know, visiting the town and there are no Jews in the town, but there's actually some type of a structure, you know, some type of a, uh, you know, let's say you go, you know, sometimes, you know, you go to these, um, uh, um, uh, like parks and they have, uh, what are those called? Gazebos with like a thatch, you know, uh, roof, right? So, uh, I mean, I guess the gazebos are normally open, but let's say you got like a ra- you know a railing around it, you do good off-stick or whatever. You could imagine a gazebo technically could qualify, right? So you know, so could you do it? it was, you know, not made by any Jew. You're not going to be mechadesh badavar, right? How much is this Yerushalmi according to Beitzel strictly required, you know, or just something that like is appropriate to be done? Because it's not in the words of Beitzel at all, and it's certainly not in the Bavli at all. So that's an interesting question, lihalacha. How much do we go by the Yushalmi and demand lihalacha that if you're using a sukkah not made for the purpose, something new has to be done for that purpose or not? That's what the Yushalmi introduces. According to what we have, it's only Beit Shammai that's concerned about that. Beit Hill says it could be a completely non-Chag related sukkah and you could still be Yotze with it. Okay, let's take a look at the Gemara. My time I was Beit Shammai. What's the reasonings of Beit Shammai? Where do they get the idea it has to be made for the sake of Yantif? Or for the sake of the Chag, I should say. There's also Cholomoe. Amakra, the verse says, Chag of Sukkot, Shivas Yamim Hashem. The holiday of Sukkot, seven days, to God. So it's being read, as we know before, when, how we learned out the walls of a Sukkah, that the word Sukkot, you know, is being read by Chazal to tell us something not just about the holiday, but about the actual object of the Sukkah. So Sukkah, Lahashen is basically what emerges from the Pasuk. It has to be a sukkah for God. Sukkah hasui, or sukkah, right, or chag hasukot, maybe, even before we get to the Lahashen. It has to be a sukkah of the chag. It has to be a sukkah sukkah. It's not just a hut. It has to be a sukkah of the chag. It has to be a sukkah for the, for the yantiv. So, sukkah hasui lishen chag ba'inan. It has to be a sukkah that's, uh, that's labeled as a sukkah sachag. It can't just be a stam hut. And Beitil would say, You need it for Rav Sheshesh. Rav Sheshesh says in the name of Rabbi Akiva, How do you know that you cannot derive benefit from the wood of a sukkah? Um, you know, that this is a principle that's normally called an object that's designated to be used for the mitzvah, you cannot use it for some other purpose. Like you cannot go ahead and take your esrog in the middle of sukkahs and make it into esrog jam. You cannot take oil out of your menorah and use it for some other purpose. If it's set aside for the mitzvah, it cannot be taken away and used for some other purpose. How do you know that the wood of a sukkah is forbidden for benefit the entire seven days? Talmud Lomar, the verse teaches, the sukkah, ignoring the word chag for now, the sukkah is to God, meaning so it's like sanctified to God, and therefore cannot be used. Now, again, I once again emphasize the lahashem, but here this brighter is emphasizing the word chag. The say and chag though does not just mean yantiv. Chag is often read by Chazal as meaning the korban chagiga, the korban that is brought, you know, on yantiv as a to celebrate the yantiv. So the same way God's name it takes, you know, um, descends upon, you know, the um, it, you know takes effect upon the korban, the chagiga, the chagiga is sanctified to God. Kachal shem shemayim al sukkah. So God's name takes effect upon, descends upon the sukkah. 
So Chag HaSukkot does not mean it has to be a Sukkot HaChag. Does not mean it has to be a Sukkah identified for the Chag. But what it means is the Sukkah is like a Chagiga. And that a Sukkah on Sukkot actually is sanctified the way a Chagiga is and you cannot derive benefits from it. Okay? So that's what they do with the Pasuk to tell you that you cannot derive benefit and that it's like a Chagiga. They do not derive from the Pasuk that you have to designate it as a sukkah for the Chag. Now, by the way, it's a little ironic if you think about it. If you're going to so, go so far to say that the sukkah is like a korban and it's somehow is sanctified and off-limits, but, and at the same time, that's what, they, that's what the Gemara is saying Beitillo does with the Pasuk of Chag HaSukkot, makes it like the korban Chagiga, and at the same time they're saying, but the sukkah does not, itself, does not have to be designated as a sukkah you're going to use for the mitzvah. So what does that mean? It means on Kamsukas and every single hut out there in the world that in theory I could use for my mitzvah is now sanctified and off limits. So presumably, no. Presumably, what makes it into a sukkah Chag is that I actually, in fact, use it, right? Or maybe if I made it for that purpose, but, e- but even once I didn't make it for that purpose, they don't become a sukkah sachad until they, until they get used as a sukkah sachad, until they go in there on sukkahs and I eat in it. It's not like every hut in the world is now usher because in theory it could be used. Okay, but it is still ironic that the same Beit Hillel that says you don't have to designate something as a sukkah says, but something that actually is a sukkah gets sort of almost designated by God. Once it actually is being used as a sukkah, then it actually gets like sanctified and becomes off limits. That's what Beit Hillel does with his pasuk, but not to tell you that it has to be designated as such. So let's take a look what the Gemara says. Doesn't Beit Shammai need it for that? To tell me that it gets like sanctified, like a Chagiga and off limits? The Gemara says, you know what, you're right. That Beit Shammai does need it to tell me that. Chag tells me it's like a Korban Chagiga, off limits. What's the reasoning of Beit Shammai? Ksiv Krachlin, another verse says, the Chag of Sukkot you should make for yourself seven days. So again, we have Chag HaSukkot is repeated. Right? It's again the juxtaposition of Chag and HaSukkot. So, you know, we would just say Pshad of the Pasuk is just identifying which Yantav we're talking about. You can't just say Chag, which Yantav we're talking about. Either. You can't just say Sukkot. Now we'll say Sukkot. But the Torah doesn't say Sukkot, right? It's called a Chag HaMatzot, Chag HaSukkot. That's how you identify it. But nevertheless, the Gemara says, sees that that juxtaposition of the word Chag and Sukkah is telling you something about the object of the Sukkah. It has to be a, it has to be a, a Sukkah for, a, a Sukkah for the Yantiv. And what's a Sukkah for the Yantiv? It's made for that purpose. It has to be a Sukkah HaChag. So, Sukkah Chag Ba'inan. Yes, it has to be a Chag HaSukkot. It has to be a Sukkah HaChag. What makes it a Sukkah of the Chag? That it was made for that purpose. What would Beitel say? Beitel says, no, no, no. The emphasis of that Pasuk is not to tell you that it has to be a Sukkah for the Chag. It's actually the end of the Pasuk. Shivat Yamim, right, which is um, that, that you can actually make the Sukkah, like, um, um, you know, any time during the seven days. That you can even make a Sukkah on Cholomoed. Okay? Gesundheit. Right. So, um, Rashi, by the way, says a little bit more. It's not just the juxtaposition of Chag and Sukkah, according to Beit Shammai. It's, it's, he, sort of re, he sort of mixes up the words. He reads it, Sukkot Tasel Lecha for the Chag. Okay, so sort of like, make a Tasel Lecha, and how, what, you should make it for the purpose of the Chag. That's sort of how Beit Shammai is, reasoning, is reading it. Anyway, Beit Hill says it's telling you, no, you can make it even during the Chag. You can make a sukkah, it doesn't have to be for all seven days. It's so temporary even for one day, and it's enough to be a yant of sukkah, and you can be yotze with it. Well, um, um, so that's what they say. And We're going to see later that there's a position of Rebbe Eliezer that in order for you to use a sukkah, it has to really be like your house. In what way? Number one, he says you have to eat two meals in it a day, every day for all seven days. It's not just like if you eat a meal, you should eat it in a sukkah. To really make it like your house, you have to be eating two regular meals in it every single day for all seven days. Well, a derivative of that is you can't make your sukkah on cholamoid. Because if you make your sukkah on cholamoid, you haven't eaten it for all seven days. Right? So to be a real sukkah that is like your house, it has to really be, have a real serious sense of permanence for that week. 
it's around for the whole week, you ate in it every day of the week, and so on. That's Rabbi Yoliadzer. So Beit Shammai says, you can't make a Sefer Cholomoe. Okay, so right now, what have we said? We said that you have Sukkim that juxtapose Chag to Sukkah. One Pasuk, everybody agrees you learn out that a Sukkah is somewhat sanctified, like a Korban Chagiga, and it's off-limits, and you can't derive benefits from it. The other Pasuk is the debate. The Beit Shammai says it means that a sukkah has to be made for the purpose of the Chag. And Beit Hillel says, no, it means that you can make it anytime during the Chag. Okay, so again, notice that what's clustering for Beit Shammai, the way the Gemara is understanding it. By the way, saying that Beit Shammai holds like Rabbi Eliezer is not a big finish because in general we say that Rabbi Eliezer is from the house of Beit Shammai. It's more like Rabbi Eliezer holds like Beit Shammai. Anyway, so, so the, what's clustering around Beit Shammai is you need to make a sukkah for all seven days and you need to make it for the yantas, right? Sort of like what's needed to give it its identity as a sukkah, that's your yotze bow, it needs a lot more criteria to sort of establish it as something sort of serious, sort of substitute for the house, intentional, that's identified as a sukkah v'chad. That's what you need, according to Beit Shammai. Beit Shammai says, nah, you could find some lean-to that was made for this, some sheep, and it was only made just for today, you know, put up today, going to be taken down tomorrow. Fine, you're Yose. It serves as a hut, and that's all you need. Very liberal approach. Of course, like I said, once you're using it as your sukkah, then it gets the designation. Then it becomes kadosh and off limits and all those things. Now, before we continue with this issue of doing it lishma, I want to say a word about the issue of, like, Chal Shem Shemayim, God's name descends upon the sukkah. So, first of all, that's a very strong language. Normally, when we talk about this idea, like I framed it before, we normally frame it as like, Chuksa designated for the mitzvah. And that's generally understood to be a rabbinic idea. Here we're quoting Psukim. We're making it sound like it's a biblical idea. And number two, there's a difference in the scope, in the sense of the parameters. If I say it's designated for the mitzvah, so don't make jam out of your esro, you need to use it, and don't take oil from your, from your menorah, you need to, you know, once you put it in your menorah, you need to use it for the, for the mitzvah, or if I say don't derive benefit from the, from the wood of the sukkah, right? If I said don't derive benefit from the esro, for example, what would it mean you're not allowed to do? Yes, but what else could you do? You couldn't even necessarily smell it. Ah, but I'm not taking it away from the mitzvah. Well, who cares? You can't derive benefit. So am I saying, it's set aside for the mitzvah, so don't take it away from the mitzvah. That only limits certain types of things, things that would prevent it from being used for the mitzvah. Or am I saying it comes almost like holy and off limits, and I can't even derive any benefit? Right? So that's a very different idea. Normally, the concept seems more rabbinic, more that the emphasis is don't sort of misdirect it to another use. Whereas this language seems more biblical, sanctified to God, sanctified like the Chagiga, and seems more completely off limits. Um, and therefore, there are some that actually, you know, there's a whole discussion, but there's definitely a major series of Rishonim that understand that, yes, it's a special halacha by sukkah. Sukkah is not just a normal example of this idea of designated for the mitzvah. Specifically by sukkah, we have a more biblical concept called chal shem shamayim and does make it, A, it's biblical, and B, it's more absolutely off limits than the normal rabbinic concept of chuktzolimitzvasa. Okay, and then there becomes an interesting debate which part of the sukkah. Because if I say atse sukkah, the wood, what are you thinking? Are you thinking the walls? Are you thinking the schach? As we know, as we've been seeing, sukkah primarily means the schach. But there are various times when it also includes the idea of the walls. So there's an interesting debate in the Rishonim whether this concept, which is again stronger than the normal concept of hukhtzolimitzvah, so a, a distinctive sukkah concept of chal shem shamayim, sanctified almost, is that concept applied just to the schach or to the entire sukkah? You had a question. I was going to ask if uh, so this, uh, or Right, so that was, that's an excellent question. What do we mean that you can't, like, derive benefit? I mean, so what it has to mean is you can't, because, I mean, exactly, the whole way you do sukkah, as opposed to lulav, which you just hold and shake, or a shofar, which you just blow. 
the whole sort of way you use, I mean, you could say by shofar you have to get some aesthetic benefit, but the fundamental way you use sukkah is by using it to provide you with the benefit of the shade and so on. So how can you say, you know, you can't derive? So what you would have to say is, you cannot derive benefit that is not it's the natural use of it serving as a type of a house. So for example, could you, you know, if you had, could you, um, smell it if it's you know if it had some nice smelling things could you go ahead and like uh, rub your back against it and scratch your back against the wall right and you know what maybe at the end you're right maybe at the end we'll interpret derived benefit meaning deriving benefit in a way that takes it away from the mitzvah maybe that it will be where we'll end up okay but nevertheless um, you know the question still is is about you know, is it this biblical idea? Is it rabbinic idea? And so on. But it's an excellent point. You do have to ask, come on, you're deriving benefit just by sitting in the sukkah. So we have to define what the forbidden benefit is in a more specific and a more narrow way. The last thing I want to say about this is, so why is there this bizarre idea by a sukkah? How shame shemaim ala sukkah? So, um, you know, it works out very nicely. I think I mentioned before, there's a, a very a good book on Sukkot called, um, I forget what it's called, Mayim Hitzgalut and something by, um, by uh, uh, Yaakov Nagain. He's actually, his name is Ginak. He's Menachem Ginak's son. He's a, 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 a rav in um, Yeshiva Otniel in Israel. And his old doctoral dissertation was on Mesechet Sukkot and on sort of some of the themes, you know, more religious themes that are going on in Mesechet Sukkot. And, um, you know, and particularly this whole issue about the sukkah as Adonai uh, Kavod, and, um, you know, we look, had before the whole issue of the Kaddish Kaddashim and being in God's presence, and, you know, remembering, like, the covering of the Kruvim and all of that. So with all of that imagery of the sukkah, the Ananei Kavod, so if the Shach represents the Ananim, right, is the, God, is, is the cloud, and the cloud that not just led us, but the clouds that contain God's glory, or the manifestation of God's presence, so you really understand, Chal Shem Shemayim al right, because the Shach is representing, you know, exactly that, the Anan, which, which, you know, which was with God's presence. So that's a, I think, a very powerful way to understand why this would be a distinctive idea by sukkah more than by other mitzvah. Other mitzvah, okay, it's designated for the mitzvah. But here, it's chal shem shemayim. Like, it's particularly the schach is like, you know, really, like the, the God's name is really on the schach. Okay, so that is that idea. Now we get back to the question of making it for the sake of yantiv or not, or for the sake of the mitzvah. So the Gemara says like this. Um, I'm, um, okay. Um, does they still not hold of the position of Rav Yudam Arav which admittedly is an Amora but nevertheless the Gemara understands that that would be what we're about to say is a pretty universal position what does Rav Yudam Arav say Dhamma Rav Yudam Arav because Rav Yudam says in the name of Rav uh, Dhamma Rav Yudam Arav um, this is by Tzitzis if you wanted to make Tzitzit from the um let's say the fringes, which is what we call tzitzit, but you know, the natural fringes at the edge of a garment, or from strings, like you had like, um, you know, you had like a stitching, you, you made some stitching, and you didn't, you let the, like, the, 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 uh, the thread hang loose, you know, you didn't cut off the last thread at the stitching at the end of your garment, or I mean a guardian, which is also something uh, similar, um, what does Rashi say? Garden is um, oh, Rashi says garden is the is the is the fringes. Kotsim are just like some you know some of the uh, all of these are like strings that are hanging naturally hanging off of your garment, either the fringes or thread that hasn't been cut or some of the weave of the garment that's hanging loose. And you said, hey, great! I've already got a string hanging from my garment. Let me twist it around and make it into tzitzis. So in that case, we say psula. It's invalid. However, if you make it from sisin, which is basically um, some type of like a, of a string which was not um, you know not uh, um, um, twisted and woven for the purpose of tzitzit, but it was intentionally put in, in the, put in the garments for that purpose, then sheira, that's okay. As long as you put it in the garment to serve as tzitzit, it doesn't matter where the string comes from. Now, Rav Yehuda said, this is what the tradition in the name of Rav. But then after I said it over, after Rav died, he went and he learned by Shmuel. So very often, by the way, Rav Yehuda is a major 
sort of funnel for the traditions of Rav and Shmuel. The very often Amar Amarav Yudam or Shmuel or Amarav Yudam or Rav. He first learned by Rav and then he went and he learned by Shmuel. So he said, when I went and I told Shmuel what Rav had said, this halacha, he said to me, Amarli, Afmina Sisinami Psula. Even if you make it from this sisin, which again are like normal strings, uh, you know, but you put it in the garments for the sake of tzitzit, but it was just a, a, a plain string, even that's invalid. You need it to be spun for the sake of tzitzit. Okay, when you go ahead and you buy your tzitzit strings in the uh, marketplace, right, it's got a little hechsher on it, that it says, Tavli lishma, it was even spun lishma. You can't go ahead and buy a yarn of, you know, a, a, a ball of wool, and just say, oh, I got some, some ball of wool here, let me cut it and put it in. That's, actually, can you make it from a ball of wool? That's what tzitzit is, like a ball of wool. That's the date of Rav and Shmuel. Rav says, sure, as long as you put it in the garments for the sake of tzitzit. Shmuel says, no, even the wool, the ball of wool, has to be made for t- as tzitzit wool as sister strings. It can't just be some wool. Okay, fine. That's a debate by Tzitzit. Can you use a ball of wool? But everybody agrees that you have to put it in the garment for the sake of Tzitzit. So the Gemara is saying, look, this basically should be telling me a principle that when you use, want to use something as an object for a mitzvah, it has to be made for the purpose of the mitzvah. Right? That, that's, the, that's the point. You can't just have, magically have use something as a sister string. It has to be constructed for that purpose. Okay, even if it doesn't have to be spun for it, some part of the turning it into the final object, the putting the string through the hole, has to be for the sake of tzitzit. So if that's true, they still on that hold of that, why do they say that sukkah, you don't need it? Now, we right now have only two data points, right? We have the data point of tzitzit that needs being asiya lishma, it be made for the purpose, and we have the data point of sukkah that doesn't need asiya lishma. So what's the question we need to ask ourselves? Right? If we want to know what's the rule, right? We have one data point that Sukkah doesn't need Asiyah and Sitzis does. So, there's obviously not one universal rule that covers both of them, but we're going to have to figure out which one is the rule and which one is the exception. Right? We can go either way. We can say, you know what, you're right. Really, everything needs to be made Lishma. Sukkah is a special exception that doesn't need it. That's one way we could go. Or we could go the other way. Nothing needs to be made Lishma. Sitzis is a special exception that does need it. Okay, let's see which way the Gemara takes it. So the Gemara says like this. So hachinamini by sukkah asuya lishma. Let's demand a sukkah made for the sake of sukkahs. Now, shining out on Damakra, there it's different. The verse says, Kedilim ta'asel lecha. There there's a special demand for Sitzis to be made Lishma. Sitzis you should make for you. What's the for you? Lecha, l'shem chovcha. It has to intentionally be made for the obligation. It has to be made lishma. But the general rule is not needed. So the Gemara says, Hachanami, here also, it says for you, by sukkahs as well. Lecha, l'shem chovcha. That should mean for the sake of your obligation. So the Gemara says, no. Lecha there just means you have to own it. You can't be yotze with a stolen sukkah. That's what the lecha means. But not that it has to be made for the purpose of sukkah. So what? You also can't be yotze with stolen sitzis. So the lecha there should mean you have to own it and it can't be stolen. It, shouldn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that to be made for the sake of sukkahs. And it says no. There is another verse. It says they, they, the people of Israel, should make for themselves tzitzit, meaning it has to, they have to own it. So the extra lecha tells you it has to be made for the sake of tzitzit. So what has the Gemara now said? We have, both of them say l'cha, or l'cha and l'hem, or whatever. To one degree it tells you, you can't steal your sukkah, you can't steal your tzitzit. But then there's an extra possible by tzitzit, and that tells you tzitzit have to be made lishma. But the general rule is, objects of mitzvah do not have to be made lishma. That's what you get from Beit Hillel. So, what comes out of this is interesting, because first of all, it's important to distinguish objects of mitzvah from objects of kiddushah. You can't use tefillin or Sefer Torah without making like the klaf lishma, the tefillin lishma. Those are objects of holiness, not just objects used for a mitzvah. Those are things that actually have God's name written on them. Okay, the boxes of tefillin house that and even the, God, the letters of God's names are on the boxes, the shin, the dollar, whatever. Those types of things, that needs lishma. The question is objects of a mitzvah. And if you think about it, right, do I have to... They, you know, produce the oil of a, for the Hanukkah menorah lishma? 
do I have to cut down my lulav and esrog off of the tree lishma? Like, no, right? So, what are other objects of a mitzvah that I would do? What are, let's think, what are other mitzvah objects? Matzah. Well, matzah is a good question. Because there, you know, and we do learn from matzah that, you know, you have to sort of walk it with shame matzah, so that's learned from a special pasuk. So again, is that a special requirement by matzah, or is that the rule? Right? So this is the general issue. So the Shammai seems to be their position. Yeah, yeah. Every object of this has to get I don't know. Real, I don't know what they do with, like, the lulav and the esro. The shofar. Does that have to be named lishma? Let's say somebody just, uh, you know, was making it as a musical instrument. Right? So... You know, it seems like, from as we know, that we've never heard of this idea lishma in general, and that it's limited primarily to we know it by tefillin and primarily to tzitzit. We tend to lump tefillin and tzitzit together, but halachically they're quite distinct categories. Okay, and that's what Beit Hillel says. The basic rule is you don't need objects of mitzvah made lishma. It's just a specific tzitzit thing because of a special lucha. As opposed to Beit Shammai, we don't know what Beit Shammai would say by your shofar and your lulav and esrog, but at least he says that by your sukkah there's a pasuk that tells you that. Yes, your sukkah to be a sukkah, a, a, a good object of a mitzvah has to be made for the sake of sukkah. So upshot is that according to Beit Hillel, you can use any random hut made by anybody. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be made for that purpose. According to the Rishalmi, you're supposed to do something small to designate it as a sukkah for the yantiv, but according to the Bible, you don't have to do anything. Once you start using it, or if you've made it as such, then there's this powerful idea of chal shem shamayim. Like it becomes... Then it becomes, once it's, once it's being used, sanctified to God. Maybe only the schach, this very powerful idea, and as we talked about, what that might be derived and, you know, and symbolized. Okay, but that is where you have, according to Beit Hillel, um, according to Beit Hillel. But since this, everybody reads the response. The final thing I'll just mention in terms of this point at the end, about ownership of a sukkah. So if you say ownership, the, uh, the opposite, you know, the, 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 it's not just a question of being stolen. What's another example of not owning something if it's not stolen? Borrowed. So borrowed tzitzit, you're not yotze with, which is what the idea of ownership by tzitzit, you really do have to own it, which is why the whole idea that a shul has the tzitzit, but like everybody's a partner in it, and it's a partnership question. So, okay, the shul wants you to transfer ownership to you if you need to use it. You know, there's all these questions about making a bracha on the tzitzit of a shul. By a sukkah, of course, you go to somebody's sukkah, some sukkah for a meal, you make a bracha. So actually, a sukkah you are yotze borrowed, and a tzitzit not, and that's learned from various psukim as well, whether the lecha means real ownership, you really have to own it, or it just means it can't be stolen. Okay, the other interesting question is, why would you need a pasuk to tell me it can't be stolen, whatever happened to this general idea of mitzvah hababi avera? Should I anyway know you can't use stolen objects because it's a mitzvah coming by a sin? So we'll talk about that when we get to the sugya of mitzvah babi avera, which is in the third parak, which is about luluman and esro. Okay, but the other thing we have learned here is, so in terms of general principles we've learned about Sukkot, number one, it doesn't have to be made for the sake of Sukkot. It only has to be made for the sake of shade, although the Yishami says you have to add a little bit. Number two is, there's a idea of Suk, uh, of Chal Shem Shamayim Al Sukkah, which is, seems to be more than Hukzol and Yitzvaso, maybe specific to the Schach. And number three, that you can't have a stolen Sukkah. Okay, those are the basic Sukkot ideas. Um, now we continue to the next Mishnah on Tadamizat. And this becomes the, one of the most important sort of halachot for people building a Sukkah in their backyards. Let's take a look. Next mission. You make your sukkah under a tree. It's like you made it in your house. So you can't make a sukkah underneath your tree. And that's why, you know, you go into the sukkah and you have to look up. You know, am I directly under the tree or not? I'm going to have to go out and trim the branches. I'm going to have to move the sukkah. Sukkah can't be under a tree. Now, a tree is pasulchach. Why? Because it's connected to the ground. Right? Once those branches would fall, wonderful. But now it's pasulchach. And this becomes the question of what is the status of kosher schach underneath puzzle schach? And what you have to realize is, is that there is um, um, two opinions in the, um, you know, let's wait till we get to the Gemara. Okay, so that's the Mishnah. It's, it's not good. It's like it's in the house. Sukkah agave sukkah. Now let's say you have one sukkah on top of another. They're both kosher schach, but one is built on top of another, a double-decker sukkah. The top one is kosher, the bottom is invalid. Why? Aren't it just both kosher schachs? What difference should it make? So the Gemara learns from a pasuk that you can't have sukkah tachas sukkah. You can only be under one sukkah, not under, not under two sukkot. Okay? And we'll talk about what the parameters are. But the top one is only under one sukkah. It's the bottom one that's the problem. Nobody is living in the top one, the bottom is kosher. 
He says it's not the presence of two schachs. The top one has to actually functionally be a sukkah. So if people are actually living in the top one and it's functionally a sukkah, then it's a sukkah tachas a sukkah. But if it's just use a bowl as a sukkah, but nobody is in it, so it's not actually functioning that way, it is not a problem. Okay, so the last case is quite surprising because so what? I got kosher schach here. I got another kosher schach above it. Just look at it as like a sukkah with like uh, two layers of schach. But there's this principle called sukkah tachas ha-sukkah. And no, the presence of another sukkah on top invalidates. And Rabbi Huda pulls back and he says, I agree to the principle of sukkah tachas ha-sukkah. But if nobody is living on it in the top, I'm just going to call it a double layer of schach. It only gets defined as a sukkah on top of you if people are actually living in it. Okay, so that's that issue. Let's take a look at the Gemara, which starts with the case of the tree. Rather, yeah. There's some uh, logic contradiction here in terms of um, if people are living in it, it couldn't possibly be two layers of schach. It more. Well, the schach, right, the schach yeah. is for serving. The schach is very thick and it's, and it's able to support people. Oh, yeah, that's the idea. I'm sorry I didn't spell that out, but that's the idea. The idea is that you've got a very, you know, again, how, would you, how well would you do that? But you could imagine, you know, taking like a really, really thick sash weave, you know, making it like really, really thick, you know, and you could, so that not only serves as schach, but it really can support so weight above it. There's a threshold there about the question of this idea of schach being the element that... You mean non-permanent? Yeah. Yeah, but apparently... Going out to a place where, you know, we're going away from our right. security of our home. Right. Then where do you draw that line about something that secure that somebody can actually stand Right. On? So that's what we ask. Meaning, so the first Tosos in the very beginning says, you know, we don't define permanent and house-like based on the walls. You could have a brick-walled sukkah. Right? But he says, you do define it based on the schach. Now, what would make that schach permanent? You know, what would make that schach considered basically a house and no longer scotch. So Tosha says it has to be able to let rain come through. You know, he did not say it can't be nailed down with nails. He did not say it would have to, you know, not survive the winter, right? Tosha's definition was rain comes through. So you can make a very strong, sturdy, thatched, you know, thatched roof that supports human weight but still has enough holes in it and is porous enough that rain can come through. I know it sounds strange, but, you know, we have to try to somehow quantify what that definition is that it becomes permanent roof. So, but you are right. This assumes, and that's very, it's worth bringing out, that you can have kosher schach that is strong enough to support, you know, 200 pounds above it, you know, or at least one person, or at least 100 pounds above it, right? So that's pretty surprising that you can have that and that could still be considered kosher schach and not a permanent roof. That's correct. Okay, so let's take a look at the Gemara. Amar Lo shanu The only time your sukkah under your, 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 your uh, tree is no good is if the tree provides more shade than sunlight. Okay, because then it's sort of like a sukkah tachas sukkah. Right? It's one shade, one sort of roof-like thing under another roof-like thing. I mean, if it's true if the top sukkah is kosher, how much more true is it if the top sukkah is puzzle? Right? Is that clear? Right? If I've got, right, your double-decker sukkah, and they're both kosher, right, but this is puzzle just by virtue of it being under two schach, how much more so if instead of, the, you know, here's schach one, here's schach two, if that's puzzle because that's sukkah tachas sukkah, Right? Then it goes without saying that if you've got instead of instead of a second sukkah here, you've got a tree, right? You know, you've got a tree that that's certainly puzzle. It's under it not only is it under a second roof, it's under a puzzle roof. Okay? So that's what Rabba says. What is the Gemara talking the Gemara talking about under the tree when the tree is more shade than sunlight, and therefore it itself is a type of a roof. But if more sunlight comes through than shade, then it's kosher. Where do you get this idea? Because it says under tree is like in the house. Who needs that lovely metaphor? Us, like making it in a house. Just say puzzle. Since when did you get so poetic? You make a sukkah under tree, it's puzzle. It's giving you that analogy to tell you to Elon Dumya the bias. It's only puzzle when it's like making it in a house. The same way with a house is, is the, the roof of the house provides more shade than sunlight. It's a real roof. 
it's a real, it's a, it's a type of of a, of a shade of a roof. Only a tree would only be invalid when it's like a house, when it's a real providing shade, when it's a real type of a roof. Okay, so now what the Gemara said is an amazing thing. You can have your sukkah under a tree as long as the tree is not really doing the job of schach. As long as the tree is not really providing more shade than sunlight to the area directly underneath it. I don't care about the whole tree, but the area directly underneath. As long as it's letting more sunlight get through, it's not functioning as a type of a roof. And therefore, it's irrelevant. So that would make everybody's life so easy. It's completely irrelevant as long as it's not functioning as a type of a roof. But the Gemara isn't done. So the Gemara says, so what that you're getting more sh- sunlight than shade? Um, who cares? It should still be a problem. The invalid schach of the tree is combining with the valid schach of the sukkah. Now, this point that the, even with a tree that only has a few branches of overhang is not providing more shade, it's a problem for the sukkah below it because the pasuchach is combining with the kashuchach. There's a major debate in the Rishonim what this means, which has, you, which has major debate lahalacha, because there's two scenarios, okay? One, scenario, one way of reading it is, which is the way we tend to read lahalacha, is, and now I'm going to draw, I guess, a different picture. Here's like an aerial view, I guess. Here's your schach, okay? And here is like, you know, here's like a little, like some, you know, some, 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 I don't know where we're from. Here is some, oh, I can't sort of see it. Okay, here's some like tree branches that overhang your schach, okay? What is the problem? So one approach says, the problem is that any area directly under where that branch is overhanging is negated because then the shade is coming from that branch and it's not coming from the schach below it. So basically, even if you've got just a few twigs, the area underneath the squids gets negated and then maybe you don't have enough schach left over. Okay? So that's the idea that anything overhanging invalidates the stuff below. That's one scenario. That's why everybody is looking up because, oh, wait a minute. Right here and under the tree... So therefore, that's the schach in this area might not be good because it's like right here I'm under the tree. Okay? Now, you, you, now, by the way, it doesn't mean that you need every single square inch of the sukkah to be kosher schach. You know, you can have holes or whatever. But if this section has a serious overhang, then even though I've got totally good schach here, this section is directly underneath becomes invalid. Right? That's the way we tend to think. There's, however, Rashi, I mean, whatever, the different approaches, Rashi and such, whatever, but they seem to read it differently. The Gemara doesn't say that the hakapasil schach, you know, the, you know, schach pasul et schach hakasher, the pasul schach invalidates the kosher schach. It says hakamitstaris, the pasul schach combines with the kosher schach. And the way some Rishonim read it is that no, all it means is, is not that that invalidates. All it means is that you can't use the tree overhang. If you've got a tree overhanging, let's say you don't have so much kosher schach. You, you, you don't have the minimum. You don't yet have enough kosher schach. But because of the overhang, if you combine the overhang, now you actually do have enough. Okay? Now that's the problem. Because you're using the puzzle schach together with the kosher schach. Okay, according to that, that would make our life so easy, right? As long as you have a sukkah with good schach, who cares about the tree? I mean, if the tree is, if the tree is fully providing shade, then it's like a double root. But if the tree is only a little bit of an overhang, then who cares? Then the only problem is don't use the branches. All right, I won't use the branches. I got enough schach going on in my sukkah. All right, so are those two sort of alternatives clear about what it means to be under a tree? If the tree provides the majority of shade, it doesn't matter how much schach you got on your sukkah. That's the double roof problem. You're under a, you know, if you're under a kasha roof, it's no good. Certainly if you're under a puzzle. But if the tree provides only a few branches overhang, does not provide majority of shade, there's a big debate. Does that invalidate the stuff below it, which is how we tend to understand it? Or does it not invalidate the stuff below it? It just means you can't use it to help you out. Okay? Two very different ways of reading the Gemara. Let's see what the Gemara, where the Gemara goes. So the Gemara says, okay, you got this tree with overhang. It's not a majority of shade, but it's still a problem because the puzzle stock of the tree either invalidates the stock below it or combines with the schach below it and you're not allowed to use it. So how do you deal with that fact? So the Gemara says, 
you're combining the puzzle stock of the tree with the kosher stock of the sukkah, even when it's just a little bit of an overhang, like a not majority shade. So Amara Papa Bishakhista. Oh no no. What you did was you solved the problem about the branches that overhung. How did you solve the problem? You basically uh, pulled down those branches and not cut them off, but you mixed them in with the kosher schach. Imagine it's a very pliable tree, okay, and you've got a branch in a ring. What you did is you bent down the branch and you put kosher schach on top of it and you mixed it all together. Okay, and this is going to be a fascinating halacha, which is sort of like bittel, except not really. Because, um, because if you had bitzel, let's say you had some trace noodles uh, made out of, I don't know what they're made out of, trace noodles made out of uh, what? Pork. pork. I, I don't know how you'd make pork noodles, but let's imagine you have some p- trace pork strips and you have noodles and you mix it all together, right? And, okay, it's all a big jumble, but you can sort of still see, like, the little pieces of, nobody would think it's puzzle, right? But it was, what, what you do is you take puzzle schach and you mix it together with the kosher schach. If the kosher schach is, is rove, it's totally fine. Now, if it's side by side and they're clearly distinct, like you lay a metal bar by, you know, by bamboo, metal, bamboo, it's not butter, even if the bamboo is the majority. But if you make it into some, like, you know, unified whole, then there's this idea that you look at the majority and it gets defined by the majority. So you look at it as a whole unit. What's its identity? Its identity is a whole unit is defined by the majority. Okay, so that's what the Gemara says. All right, you know, well, so how can you, how can you say, the Gemara asks Rava, that if the tree on the top is only minority shade, it's okay. What about the branches that are not good? So, oh no, you mixed it all together. Okay, and that makes it all good. So the Gemara says, if you mix it all together, my lamemra, what's the Chiddush? Of course that's good. A, it's only a minority of shade, and B, you mixed it all together. So who needs the rubber? Who needs the Mishnah to tell us that? I might have thought, I shouldn't allow you to use it even when you mixed it together, because it'll lead to a case when you didn't mix it all together. We're not concerned. Yes, when it's overhanging and not mixed, it's a problem. But if you mix it all together, even though some of the schach is possible, it's okay. We also taught that in a brayta, or a mishnah actually. If you basically bent over the sukkah, a vine, right, like a, a, a grapevine, or a gourd, or kisom, I don't know, some other type of a plant, of a pliable plant, the gaban psula, okay, and you put schach on top, so you had some grapevine growing on the roof of your sukkah, and then you put schach, that's puzzle. That's mixed together, but if the kosher schach was the majority, or you actually cut the vine, shera. Now, saying if you cut the vine and cut the board cord, it's kosher, is not a big chiddush, right? Because it's no longer puzzle, but we'll talk about that later. But the bigger chiddush is this point we just said that you have puzzle schach on your sukkah, you got a vine on your sukkah. If it's mixed in together with the kosher schach, as long as the kosher schach is the majority, you can ignore the puzzle schach. It's defined by the majority. You don't say, well, you know, if, since kosher schach is the majority, therefore, if I only consider 52% of the schach, then I won't have enough shade. You don't say that. You look at you, totality, you have shade. The majority is kosher. It's all mixed together. It's fine. Okay, so that's that principle. An amazing principle. You can mix, have a mixture as opposed to when they're distinct if they're mixed, even if they're sort of noticeable, that you look at it as one unit. So the Gemara says, so don't we already know that idea that you can mix it together and we're not concerned that you'll do it without mixing it together? So the Gemara says, hey, what's the case here where it's kosher, where the kosher is on top of the vine? If you haven't really mixed it together, the vine is there and the kosher is next to it, that can't be good because then it really is schach puzzle, and that's doing part of the function together with the kosher schach. So that can't be good if they're not mixed together. It must be the scenario is you mix it together. You see that we allow it when it's mixed together and we're not saying it's no good. We're not saying that we're concerned that you'll come to allow it when it's not mixed together. So again, Rabbah said our Mishnah about the tree on top is a case where the tree provides the majority of shade. If it's not, it's okay. 
So the simple sense of Rabbah is great. It's okay. We don't have to worry about overhanging trees if they don't provide you dirty The more pulls down. Ah, you still got those problematic branches. What are you going to do about it? So they're okay, you're yeah, fine. According to that, you'll mix it all together. So I said, well, but then it's obvious, right? Of course it's okay. It's mixed all together. We already know from this other Mishnah that if you mix puzzle schach with kosher schach and it's the majority, it's okay. And we already know that we'll let you do it. And we're not afraid that you will forget to mix it together. Someone says, no, here's the chit. Maud Tema, I might have thought, if you already went ahead and mixed it together, we're going to tell you, fine, you can live in the sukkah. But if you ask me, what should I do? I'll say, you know, cut down the branches, move your sukkah, I'll tell you something else. That we won't even make a problem. We'll let you mix it together. Okay, so the upshot of this is two very interesting ideas. One is the fascinating point like I said, that you don't sort of, you would never say this in a world of tray food, but you get where, so it's not exactly the idea of classic bittel, but it's more of an idea that if you have a real mixture, they're not in distinct spaces, it's really mixed together, so it's one big unit of schach, and, and it's a mixture of kosher and puzzle ingredients, you look at its identity based on the majority of the ingredients, okay, which is, we do see that in some other scenarios, things like that, um, like, if you're trying to determine if something is considered dough and bread for, uh, for taking challah or for matzah, and it's a mixture of wheat flour and, like, rice flour, so that you look at the totality of its identity based on the majority. And it might not be based on classic ideas of bittel. Okay, so that's, but it's obviously within that same, within the same conceptual world as bittel. So one is, if it's mixed together, you look at the totality and you go by the majority, even if some of this is The other big point is, is that an overhanging tree that is only a minority of shade, it's not a majority of shade, how bad is it? The Gemara says it's still a problem, but how much of a problem? Only a problem that you can't use it together with your kosher schach. If you need extra shade, you can't use the overhang. If that was the only problem, now, now that everybody has this prepackaged, you know, sort of roll it out schach, everybody has enough schach, and we wouldn't have to worry about trees, as long as it was not a majority of shade. That's one way of reading the Gemara. The other way, which is the way we, are t- we, we, are, we tend to be machmir for, is that any overhang invalidates the schach directly below it. And that's a very different idea. And then you have to be worried that if you have major sections that are invalidated, you might not be able to sit there in the sukkah. Okay, and then that becomes a real issue. Not only might you not be able to sit there, I guess I'll just make the following point. Let's say you had a three-walled sukkah, right? That's three walls. You didn't have a fourth wall. Three walls, okay? These are your walls. This is open. Anyway, you got your three-wall sukkah, and you've got your overhang that's right over here, right? That's where your overhang is. Not only can you not eat there, but if this space is considered not to have kosher schach, right, then maybe you only have two walls, all right? Unless you say, well, but maybe I'll be so akuma, whatever, you can start talking. But the point is, you know, overhang can have profound implications, certainly about the question about sitting under it, if it's a big enough area, like if you have little spots, spots that have not kosher schach, it's not an issue. But if you've got a big enough section, it is an issue. So this is the, this discussion, and again, it's very vague in the Gemara, is the big question. Does the overhang invalidate the schach below it, or does it just mean you can't use the overhang to combine with the kosher schach? So this is where we'll end.